Lucille Ball. We think we know her, don't we? We've seen I Love Lucy for the last 50 years plus. We know Lucy, we know Desi, we know their children. But there's a lot we don't know yet. So let's learn it together. On this podcast, we're going to learn about Lucille Ball. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Quest, and we are here to talk about Miss Lucille Ball and Mr. Desi Arnaz. Okay, I know I talk about Desilu often, the studio Desilus, but there's a lot to say, really. But one thing I forgot. I guess I actually owe thanks to Howard Hughes. You heard me. Howard Hughes. The Howard Hughes. The philanthropist. The business mogul. The investor. The pilot engineer. And yes, the film director, Howard Hughes. So when I speak of Desilu, guys, I'm going to have to give honorable mention to Mr. Howard Hughes. Why? Howard Hughes, Desilu. I never put those two together. Well, I didn't either. But he actually did influence the purchase of the studio. Right, Howard Hughes? Desilu? Here's what happened. Howard Hughes purchased RKO. Remember RKO? The icon was the big antenna with the lightning bolts behind it and you know, it looked like a rainstorm and mostly on the late night movie the last movie you see called the midnight cinema or midnight whatever whatever would be the last thing they show before TV went straight off and all you got was that flag RKO was that movie well in 1948 Howard Hughes purchased RKO Studios And the reason he purchased it was he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be that guy. He wanted to be the one people talked about and pointed at. You know, as the guy who owned RKO, Howard Hughes. He already had a lot of accolades. But he liked that limelight that came with being a big movie studio owner. You know, being linked with the starlet's names like... You know, Ava Gardner and, you know, Snap Snap Paparazzi everywhere you went. He liked that part about owning RKO, but there's a lot more to owning a studio, as he soon learned, than just getting your picture snapped by whoever TMZ was at the time. There was a lot of work that came with that. He He hadn't thought about that part. The work that came with the business. You know, there's always the good, but there's always the work that makes the good possible. And, you know, there were a lot of things that he wasn't totally prepared for. You know, he said he had a lot of engineering problems and 
you know, the things about the studio that he didn't know how they ran and I'm not sure how well he was at taking advice, you know, from people who supposedly did know that he hired, you know, if you're going to hire someone who you claim knows, at least give them the benefit of letting them do what they do. But anyway, uh, actually the industry said only one really good movie was ever produced when uh, Howard Hughes owned RKO, and that was a movie called The Outlaw. The Outlaw was actually a Western with uh, Jane Russell. Remember that name, Jane Russell? Fabulous, fabulous actress. The movie was um, a Western. It was this long scene in the barn with uh, Jane Russell sitting in some hay, and uh, Howard Hughes was said to have spent way, way, way too much time like just zooming in on Jane Russell's attributes, shall we say, and had a special brassiere made and designed by him just for her, just for this part. That's kind of creepy. But anyway, it was the only thing supposedly the studio produced that was successful, you know, and that pumped his chest up, of course. So he went on to make other stuff and a few unsuccessful and costly adventures. Two years later... Uh, by 1955, he put the studio up for sale. You know, that limelight, that, you know, dream he had of being that guy and producing movies and, you know, nothing wrong with dreaming, nothing wrong with wanting. Go, go with your dreams and work towards your wants. But in 1955, he put the studio up for sale because he noticed that was not his craft. So, guess who purchased the studio? General Tire and Rubber Company. Yeah, you don't think a tire company or a rubber company or something, you know, so hardcore or steel and, you know, seems so different from a movie studio and a tire company. But anyway, they did. They purchased it from Howard Hughes and it was a come, come one take all deal. There were a few... Wants who some who wanted the land, some who want studios. I'll take the office equipment. I'll take this. I'll take that. And Hughes was like, "No, uh, uh, it's one or take all. You take the land. You take the studios. You take the office. Everything, all in. That's it. No pick this, pick that. So anyway, General Tires did end up purchasing the studio from Howard Hughes. I don't know what their plan was to do with that. Um, maybe just bulldoze it and just keep it for the land or whatever, but supposedly they wanted to purchase the property and write it off as a loss because they were so successful in the tire and rubber industry that they needed a tax write-off, and they thought purchasing the studio would give them that opportunity um, or just bulldoze it. Whatever they anticipated, they ended up nixing those plans uh, it didn't work out. Whatever that plan was they had to do with that, uh-uh. Didn't work for them either. Didn't work for Howard Hughes. Didn't work for them. So they put the property back on the market to the tune of $6.5 million. Everything. Just like Howard Hughes has said. You take it all or nothing. Land, studio, equipment, property. That's it. $6.5 million dollars. Now, I don't know um, 
what that sounds like to you, but it sounds like a lot of money to me. And I'm not sure if one day it'll come when it's not, when I can put the word just in front of six million, but that day hadn't come yet. But anyway, they put it on the market for six million dollars, everything. And supposedly when Desi Arnaz heard the studio was for sale, he saw opportunity. You know, he was a visionary. We had already seen that. He invented a lot of things like the rerun, which we didn't even know. We uh, had something we could take and film. It's expensive, plus it hadn't been done before. But Desi Arnaz did it and put those episodes on film, allowing them to be played later. Uh, called a rerun. And even though to Desi Arnaz, $6.5 million was a lot of money, he knew he could make it work. He knew Hughes didn't. He knew General Tyre didn't. But he knew he was the visionary that could make it work. You know. Um, so, one problem, which is probably a problem <laughs> to many, and also to Desi, $6.5 million was not the amount of money he had. Not free and clear. He would have to risk the majority of their personal assets. And I say there because, don't forget, we're talking about Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Everything they did at this point, they did together. They were the dynamic duo, don't forget. And at this time, Lucy was left out of a lot of the meetings and, you know, business part of the Desi Lou business part of it. She was an actress. She was Lucy. She was Lucy Ricardo. So he kept her involved in that, and he would take care of the business aspect of it. <clears throat> so he didn't include her in the decision to purchase the studio because he didn't want her to worry about it. But, it, you know, that's a lot to worry about. So for advice... Desi Arnaz called his friend to see what he thought about him purchasing the studio. That friend being Howard Hughes. Yes, the original owner, Howard Hughes. And when Desi Arnaz explained what the situation was, you know, the money situation, you know, the risk involved, Howard Hughes was said to have told Desi Arnaz, grab it and grab it quick. Whatever it takes, grab it. You see, uh, he knew the value of that property. He also knew the value of what was on that property. And he knew his friend, Desi Arnaz. And he knew that even though he may not have been able to uh, make his dream come true on that property and in that studio, he knew his friend Desi may be able to. Uh, so, hearing that, from him, from the man, Howard Hughes himself, he bought the studio. Desi Arnaz bought that studio. He risked the assets of himself, his uh, everything. He borrowed the $2 million from Bank of America that he needed to negotiate the final agreement, which he negotiated from $6.5 million to 6.15 million and that's what he bought the studio for he negotiated it down he ran the money you know 
just the way he could. Everything was looking good. Bam, bam, bam. Until something ticked in his head. Dun, dun, dun. Guess what? Yeah, we know. Lucy. Who is going to tell Lucy, my darling, darling wife, who I have left out of all the decision-making in this decision, that my darling wife, not only do we own a studio, but, honey baby, my loving wife, my support system, we are all in. Everything we are risking for this dream of the studio. Aha. Okay. Who's going to tell her? One thing was for sure as far as Desiones was concerned regarding this conversation. It was not going to be him. He knew his wife. And he knew this information was something that he had kept from her. And he knew he was not going to be the one that told her. Because in those days, you wasn't going to be able to text or send an email. You were going to have to stand in front of this woman and tell her, guess what, honey? I just risk everything we have on an opportunity that can make us all wonderful, wonderful for many, many years. Okay, that's great. But but uh, back to who's going to tell her. <clears throat> so, Desi Arnaz, being Desi Arnaz and knowing his wife, sent Edwin Holly. Now, Edwin Holly was the CFO. He wasn't married to Lucy. Uh, I don't know what made Desi pick Edwin Holly. I don't know if he drew straws or put names in a hat and it just came up Edwin Holly. I don't know. Maybe Edwin Holly doesn't know. You know, maybe he just had a really good rapport with Lucy and Desi thought that the news being delivered by him, he would know how to address her in a way that it wouldn't be, you know, really, really hard. Yeah, right. Okay, good luck, Edwin. I hope he got a bonus for that one. But anyway, at the time, uh, Edwin's Holly was going to approach Lucy. She was on scene on set, rather, doing a scene with Vivian Vance with just the two of them. So Luce, uh, Desi, of course, was nowhere to be found. He wasn't in the scene, so he made himself scarce because he knew what was coming up and he knew what was about to happen. So when Lucy went into her dressing room during the, during the break, that's when Edwin Holly told her, you know, the great news, da 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 Guess what? You, you own the studio, and your husband just bought it, and yeah, you're all in for this, so congratulations. And then probably freezing in his tracks, and he may have stopped breathing. I don't know what he must have felt or went through expecting anything to happen at this point. I cannot tell you what I would have expected to happen at this point, it, had it been me. But anyway, in the true, elegant, regal, Lucy fashion, all she said was this. Is that the decision? To which Mr. Holly said, yes. To which Lucy replied, okay. 
She turned and walked away. She went right back to set and finished filming the scene with Vivian Vance. <laughs> and as we all know by now, it was the right decision. A great investment and a wonderful opportunity for us as well. I mean, you know, there was a lot we gained from that venture, from that stepping out on, you know, from from that risk, basically. You know, a lot of shows came from that. So, we, you know, we kind of all win. You know, people say, oh, I never was a really Lucy fan. I never was a this fan or that fan. I'm like, okay, you watch Star Trek? Yeah, that was Lucy. Okay, you watched this? Yeah, yeah, like, that was Lucy. Uh, here, I got you. You got, you've ever watched a show called The Untouchables? Remember that one? The Untouchables? Yes, you do. Everybody remembers The Untouchables. Well, here's what happened. When Desi Arnaz read the book, The Untouchables, written by Elliot Ness, Desi and Lucy knew they had to put that book on film. The story they had read. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They knew had to be seen. They knew they had to bring it to um, an experience. You know, they were television people. They were visual people. So reading this book was so dynamic. When they read it, it was just like, that was it for them. It was, it was, it was, it was, that was it. We had to do this. But unfortunately, uh, Warner owned the property for the untouchables for the book and, you know, all the rights and everything. And Warner had decided not to develop it. I don't know why, you know, for whatever reasons, there could be a lot of reasons, but for whatever reasons, Warner decided not to develop the property. Uh, which was great news for Desi and Lucy because when Warner dropped the property from its repertory, Lucy and Desi picked it up. Yes, so you drop, I pick up. Uh, they were very happy about that because, you know, they wanted it anyway because they were so intrigued by the book that they wanted to make it the experience on a big screen. You know, that's how they that's how they rolled back, you know. And uh, they were so intrigued by the role. Desi want, uh, even briefly, briefly, briefly considered playing Elliot Ness himself. You know, well, who wouldn't? But really, the, he knew that the role required a certain kind of actor. And he respected that. And he knew he didn't have that gangster swag. So, you know, even though he was happy to have purchased a property... He wanted to also give it its due respect. And their first choice uh, to play the lead role of Elliot Ness was the actor Van Heflin. You know, uh, Van Heflin. But unfortunately for Lucy and Desi, for whatever reason, Van Heflin turned down the role. 
you turn the part down. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm going to look into that. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of different places. I find as much as I can, read as much as I can, and then bring it to you. But anyway, their first choice, Van Heflin, was turned down by Van Heflin. So, moving on, because, you know, we will continue. Their second choice of actor to play Elliot Ness was same first name, different last name, familiar actor, Van Johnson. Yes, Van Johnson. We've seen him in the episode of I Love Lucy when she played his dance partner. Yes, that Van Johnson was the choice of Lucy and Desi to play the role of Elliot Ness in the pilot film, The Untouchables. And after getting in touch with with Mr. Johnson, um, he loved the part. He had read the book or whatever. He was familiar with the character. They liked him and... He liked them, and he liked the role, and everything was agreed upon, and he accepted the role for the uh, amount of $10,000 for his part as Elliot Nesk, and uh, Desi had decided to break the pilot up into two parts, so um, it was going to be a two-night thing, you know, stretch it out, get some publicity. So anyway, Van Johnson was going to play Elliot Ness in the... Uh, untouchables as uh, Elliot Ness. So for $10,000. Arrangements were made. Production gets underway. Desi is happy. And everyone's happy. Or or so we think. You know, we build the sets. We get the engineers hired. And, you know, it's that time. And Monday morning, we're going to start filming this big production half a million dollars put into this big production. You know, we've got Van Johnson, Elliot Ness, everybody else is on on staff, and we're going to start from the one. And dun-dun-dun. Oh, boy. What does that people say about best laid plans? Well, no different here for Desi and Lucy. The Saturday before the Monday that filming was supposed to begin, they receive a call from Evie Johnson, or Evie Johnson, depending on what side of the planet you're from. Mrs. Johnson, wife of Van Johnson, remember him? He's getting ready to play Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. Well, Evie Johnson, wife of Van Johnson, apparently was not very happy with the salary and the financial agreement her husband, Van Johnson, had made with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz to play Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. So Miss Evie Johnson made a phone call to Mr. Desi Arnaz. And Miss Evie Johnson said, if the pilot is going to have two parts, rather than paying my husband the $10,000 for the entire pilot, why not pay him 
$10,000 for each part of the pilot, which would bring that total to 20000 Not what had been agreed upon previously. Okay, well, things happen. You know, negotiate. That's what managers are for. I don't know if she was a manager, but you don't ask, you don't get. But she furthermore added what I call uh-uh pressure. If Mr. Johnson, my husband, does not receive this new salary, he will not be at filming on Monday morning. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Desi Arnez, who was said to been friendly, as he thought, with Van Johnson. I'm sure was surprised to get this phone call from Evie Johnson, Van Johnson's wife, rather than you contact me personally. Why is your wife calling me when it should be you? And I know, I can imagine what that conversation sounded like, especially after reading about Marcella Rabwin. She was actually married to Desi's personal assistant. She was the wife of his doctor. And she was quoted as saying that actually Desi Arnaz, especially if he was angry, had the worst language of anyone she had ever heard. But I can't imagine what kind of language I would have had if I'm thinking on Monday morning, we all good. I've spent a half million dollars. Everything's agreed upon. Everything's bought. Everything's paid for. Sets are built. People are sitting around getting paid. I've bought this. I paid contracts, yada, yada. And then on Saturday night, your wife calls me and tells me that you're not happy. You should have called me and told me you're not happy. And Desi, you know, look, this is a grown man. He did not appreciate being bullied and having the entire production, you know, basically put on risk in the 11th hour. So, Lucy and Desi? What? Yes, basically bossed up on him. So... Are we going to deal with the bullying and betraying from our friends? Or are we going to stop production and lose our investment, our dreams, our everything all in? Mm-mm, no, not Desi Arnaz, not Lucille Ball. Not going to happen. Here's what happened. Uh, Desi Arnaz picked his Rolodex up off his desk. Start thumbing through the pages. Don't forget, he's been in the game for a while. He's got some names in there. He knows some things. He knows some people. Gets to his name of his friend. Oh, I got a name. Perfect. Robert Stack. Recognize that name. Robert Stack. Just says the untouchables. Okay. Not only did Robert Stack agree to the role of Elliot Ness before he had even seen the script, he agreed also to the offer for the role. Desi and Lucy offered him $15,000 for the two-part episode, plus a percentage of the show's earnings throughout the the running of the show, not just a pilot, all future 
episodes. As long as there is an Untouchables, you're going to be getting paid. Just for having my back. What? That's what's up. So from October of 1959 until May when the final episode ran, Robert Stack came up for being a friend and and being there in that 11th hour. And and when I hear the word, the untouchables, I see Robert Stack. You know, a lot of people do. Um, he's synonymous with that show. I mean, I know they've made remakes, and there's a lot of people who've re-portrayed Elliot Ness, but for myself, I will always see Robert Stack when I hear The Untouchables. I, I wonder if Mr. and Mrs. Van and Evie Johnson ever watched the show. I do wonder. But that's just one. You know, big one, but just one. They did a lot. Lucy Ball, Desi Arnaz, come on now. The Des the production from Desi Lou, we're still enjoying today, you know, fifty years later, their drive, their accomplishments, their successes. They deserve our respect and they deserve our appreciation. They've given us a lot, you know, throughout the years. They've given us themselves. They've given us laughter when things were dark. They've given us themselves and an appreciation and recognition of Lucille Ball. Uh, actually, July, July of 1989, there was an award called the Presidential Medal of Freedom awarded to five stellar Americans, General James Doolittle for being a trailblazer of modern aviation, Ambassador George Keenan for his visionary efforts in Soviet relations, you know, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, the achiever in the fight against the tide of extremism, Ambassador Clarence Dillon, you know, his work with the American foreign economic policy and the fifth stellar American awarded the presidential honor. Lucille Ball awarded posthumously as the first lady of television. One of America's greatest comedians, the citation read, her face was seen by more people more often than the face of any human being who ever lived. Who can forget Lucy? She was like everyone's next-door neighbor, only funnier. Lucille Ball was a treasure who brought laughter to us all. Love Lucy? Sure. This nation is grateful to her, and we will miss her dearly. End quote. And we truly do. Thank you, Lucille Ball. Thank you, Desi Arnaz. We thank you for that decision to put the tapes 
on these episodes so we could enjoy them so many years later. Big, big, big thank you. Big thank you. Big thank you. Take care. Keep laughing. Keep taking care. Until we talk again about the legend from Roman scandals to stone pillow. Lucille Ball.